Section 10 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Kennedy, South Australia. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 1, Chapter 7, Part 1. 1. They were to spend their honeymoon at Valambrosa. For Mario, the place had happy memories of childhood. For Joanna, the lovely-sounding name seemed to breathe the essence of a dream Italy. She imagined Valambrosa as a wonderful, classic valley, shaded by great trees such as never grew at home, and it was grief to her that they could not go there by a through train from Calais. They would have to stay a night in Florence on the way. Mario had not told his sister of their movements, so no one met them at the station. Joanna had not believed any journey could be so long and so tiring, but as they crossed a deserted piazza to their hotel, a porter running before them with their hand luggage, the midnight air refreshed her wonderfully. She was invigorated too, even in the darkness, by the strangeness of everything. Among these unfamiliar buildings, breathing this new air, walking under this foreign sky, the man with whom she had passed the last forty-eight hours in a cramped room of a railway carriage, became suddenly an old and tried friend. She clung to his arm and reassured herself by stealing glances at his dim profile. Though he did not once turn his face to hers, she knew he was preoccupied utterly by thoughts of her. At the hotel bureau, some letters were handed to Mario, but he stuffed them into his pocket without looking at them. Then Joanna and he were taken up in a lift and followed their luggage down a long passage. The bedroom had the highest ceiling Joanna had ever seen in a bedroom, and the loftiest windows with curtains arranged in a different way from any curtains at home. But she was most of all struck by the two little high beds. These were pushed together, made up as one, and turned into a huge diaphanous tent by white draperies which hung from high wooden poles. Instinctively, Joanna fancied some bridal symbol, and she would not have been surprised if the snowy hangings had been crowned with orange blossoms. But Mario, seeing her interest, explained the mosquito curtains to her, and as she curiously fingered the net, the porter smiled and said something to Mario. It was clearly the first time the young signora had been in Italy. When they were left alone, Mario glanced over his letters and handed one in a grey envelope to Joanna. For you, he said, and throwing his own unopened on a table, he went into the adjoining bathroom where Joanna heard him turn on a water tap. At the sight of the handwriting on her letter, Joanna caught her breath. It was from Bob. Its presence here in Italy a miracle till she saw that it had been forwarded from Kalesi Street in Linnet's hand. It must have reached home immediately after her leaving, and so had outrun her on the journey south. What could Bob have to say? But why did it matter what he said? The envelope felt very thin. Suppose now, too late, Bob were to tell her that he loved her, that he had loved her all along. Why else should he have written? Sitting half on half against the bed so that the poles at the corners creaked from the strain on the netting. Joanna read the short note Bob had written her. He wished her well. He had passed his examination, would shortly start for Africa. He was hers ever, Bob. 
and underneath the signature as a postscript, he had set the words, Have a good time. That was all. Joanna, more shaken than she knew by the sight of Bob's handwriting, was relieved and chagrined in the same moment. She was tired out too from the journey, irritated by the dust which felt gritty against her skin all over her body. Overwrought by the excitement of Mario's persistent wooing in the dark railway carriage. Throwing back her head and puckering up her face like a child, she burst out crying. As the first loud, desolate wail escaped her, she felt tremendous surprise. I've never cried like this before, she said within herself. What can be happening to me? And she went on crying aloud finding wonderful relief and a kind of healing in the new unrestraint. Hearing the noise above his own splashing, Mario came running into her with a frightened face. His hands were wet, and he had taken off his coat and his collar, which made him into a stranger again. He questioned Joanna anxiously. What was wrong? She did not know, but between her astonished sobs, she tried to tell him. She was afraid he would be angry. But instead he was kind. She handed him the letter to read, and having glanced through it, he let it fall on the carpet, comforting her with his cool, damp hands. And presently, before she had quite stopped crying, he took her to the mirror and made her laugh at the sight of her dirty, tear-stained cheeks. He pulled the pins out of her hat with his deft fingers and covered her face with kisses. You see, I love you, dirt and all, he said, holding her, laughing at her, brushing the letter and her tears aside as mere childishness. Joanna's heart was warm with gratitude to him. This man knew how to treat her, and now with his wet, pushed-back hair and his strong bare neck, he looked boyish, different from the Mario she had known before. He had irresistible grace. No one had warned her of the beauty men conceal between their disfiguring clothes, their stiff collars. Two. Early next morning she was awakened by the chant of a goat herd passing with his flock under the hotel windows. Hearing it first in her dreams, this most fascinating of Florentine street cries seemed to her a melody of unearthly sweetness. Then following, and mingling with it, came other strange cries, and sounds floating from the foreign street, through the closed shutters into the quite high-walled room. It was dark in the room, but she became immediately aware that sunlight of a kind she had never yet seen was filling the outside world, beating strongly like waves against the fast-bolted shutters. Everything was strange but strangest of all was to see on the pillow beside hers the dark, disordered head of the man who had married her. He was still asleep, his face turned away, and keeping quite still on her side with her knees drawn up and her palm under her cheek, Joanna thought of the past night. Wave after wave of purely physical recollection swept through her, but at the same time in her brain a cool spectator seemed to be sitting aloof and in judgment. This then was marriage, this droll device, this astonishing, grotesque experience was what the poets had sung since the beginning. To this, 
all her quivering dreams had led, all Mario's wooing touches and his glances of fire. The reality made her feel a stranger in a strange world, not a rebellious stranger. She was humbly anxious to conform to reality, eager to accept and get used to the new aspect of things, but she was before all things astounded. Suddenly, she felt she must gaze at her husband under the altered conditions he had created, and raising herself very cautiously on her elbow, she leaned over and peered down at him in the half-light. He was sleeping like a child, with imperceptible breathing, and he had the innocent look of a child on his unconscious face. Joanna, by gentle degrees, shifted her position till she was crouching over Mario. Then suddenly he opened infantine eyes. She was caught, and she hung above him breathless, gazing ensnared, stirred to a new feeling by the changing in his eyes from babe to man. The next moment his hands had found her, and he drew her down, uttering a deep, chuckling groan of content. Mia moglie, he breathed triumphantly. Mia moglie. Mia moglie, moglie mia. Three. Vellambrosa was as deserted as lovers could wish. The season had ended weeks ago. Hotels and pensions were forbiddingly closed as if for eternity, and except for the peasants and the bitter-faced young priest, there was not a soul about. Even the foresta had its shutters barred though the careful Padrone walked through the house each day throwing them open to the sunshine for a few hours to keep the place aired. The humble little Villino Medici to which Mario and Joanna went was the only exception, and its proprietor was never tired of telling his guests that they were having the finest weather of the year hitherto. There was hot sunshine all day, and only the least hint of frost every evening. Joanna had been entranced by their journey up in the funicular. This was the last thing she expected, to go uphill to Vallombrosa. It was late afternoon and the yet unfallen gold of chestnuts and Italian oaks glowed with an intimate joyousness against the remote amethyst of the sky, which grew deeper moment by moment. The few passengers... Some soldiers and market women with whom Mario and his wife first shared the train alighted at stopping places on the lower part of the hill. So the two were soon left alone except for the conductor who had twinkling eyes, an indigo chin and a huge grey moustache. He smiled indulgently on them and allowed them to stand out on the little platform in front while he turned his fat shoulders on them and read his courrier as long as the light lasted. They leaned forward on the rail, he watching her, she gazing with delight, first on one side, then on another, of the stony, winding track which hardly seemed to violate the hillside. The little engine behind them throbbed gallantly as it pushed them up and up. They did not speak much, but now and then Mario kissed Joanna's shoulder, keeping his lips there till she felt their warmth and their hunger through her thin blouse. It seemed years since the early morning when she had found something ludicrous and inadequate in the decree of nature. Now she thought of the coming night with awakening senses, 
and for the first time with deliberate intent to stir her husband's pulses, she turned in the quivering light and looked at him. Joanna hardly recognised herself in this voluptuous charmer under Italian skies. But was it right? Did all wives feel and behave like this? She thought of her mother, of Mrs Boyd, of Aunt Georgina, of the teaching and traditions on which she had been nourished. Which was right? Those traditions or this abandonment? It seemed impossible that both could be right. Yet could anything be wrong which gave such release, such harmony with the golden world and the violet heavens? Harm no one, and it had swept away the uneasiness under which her youth had laboured for so long. She could laugh now in a voice she hardly knew, could cry easily, refreshingly, could express her emotions swiftly in gestures. She no longer jarred on herself. Joanna remembered a frequent saying of her mother's, that the test of a thing's rightness was whether one could pray to God about it without shame. Well, she had never felt so full of worship. Therefore it must be right. And yet... With her husband's arm around her, she looked down between the gold and silver of some birch trees to the great plain below. The mist lay there like fallen columns, and the river, which Mario told her was the Arno, wound in and out, shiny like a snail's track. A high old villa on a pointed hill massed itself grandly with its bodyguard of cypress against the sky. Some trees near had scarlet stems, from which a few green leaves hung limply. As Joanna gazed, the sky, changing from violet to an intenser blue, seemed to tremble downwards on the waiting earth like a lover assured of his welcome, yet incredulous of his good fortune. Again she turned her face to Mario, this time without a trace of consciousness or coquetry and all the magic of the Italian night now dwelt for her in his eyes. They had to drive from the station some miles in a little open carriage. There was no moon, and the road ran in darkness through the high, breathless pine forests. But, lying back with their heads against the folded hood of the carriage, they could watch the deep blue winding river of night sky flowing between the treetops with its foam of stars. So as to lean back comfortably, Joanna took off her hat and wound a white scarf round her head and neck. Mario said it made her look like a nun, and he knelt on the carriage floor at her feet to make love to her. His beseeching face seemed to her like a piece of escaped starlight on her knees. 4. Next morning, he took her through the woods to a little pillared shrine in which the dead leaves were drifted in heaps. On the way, they passed many other shrines, and Joanna exclaimed at their number and at the feeling of happiness their presence gave to her. In Mario's shrine, he and his sister, Madalena, had often played as children, and as he sat there now with his wife, he talked gaily of his boyhood, which had been very happy. Again and again, as he was speaking, Joanna felt all the old, accustomed moral values slipping away, and it came to her that she must put new ones in their places, without a soul from the old life to help her. In a perfectly matter-of-fact way, 
Mario told that his father had never married his mother, as was indeed reasonable, seeing that Count Rasponi was the head of a so famous family, a Maria Kecci, merely the daughter of a professor of mechanics at Turin. Besides, the whole affair had been simply a youthful escapade. As was proper, however, Maria's father had brought pressure to bear on the house of Rasponi, with the fitting result that Mario was legitimised and educated at his father's expense. Within a year of his birth, his mother had found a husband in her own class, a simple surgeon, and of that marriage was Madalena born. Since reaching her teens, said Mario, his half-sister had treated him constantly as though he, not she, had been the younger. She had not married, and since the death of both her parents, he had lived with her. Warmly, he praised her qualities. When you see her, he smiled, you will see a veritable Italian woman. But Joanna was nervous of the ordeal awaiting her in Florence, where a long visit to Madalena had been promised. And even when they had left the shrine, crossing a road and descending a green slope all dappled with sunshine, she was still anxiously forecasting the meeting between herself and this unknown, perhaps hostile, sister-in-law. Nothing Mario could say brought reassurance. Yet a moment later, Madalena was forgotten and all else. For Joanna, attracted irresistibly by a company of trees which stood further down in a hollow of the slope, had run forward and was trying how many falling leaves she could catch. There were perhaps a dozen trees together, with stems as white as milk and their leaves blowing silver against the blue sky and in their slender posturings and shadows interlaced. They were like a group of Botticelli's women. Mario stood and laughed as she raced to and fro after the leaves. Every puff of the morning air loosened one or two, sometimes in a stillness many showered at once. But they evaded the grasp like wild things in their wavering course downwards, and each time she lost one, Joanna cried out with disappointment. Each leaf you catch brings a happy year, she called out, bird-like and shrill, to Mario. And though he found her excitement childish and in some curious way unwelcome, he presently joined in the game. Already Joanna had grown clever at it. She was getting leaf after leaf, and she laughed with joyous spitefulness because her husband did not catch one. Then they grew tired and sat down and Joanna counted her happy years. Sheep came and cropped the short grass near them, and in another part of the dimpled field, two little horses never ceased waving their tails. The hours went winged. Here, life seemed quite simple. There was no past, no future, only the simple, beautifully rounded present. Five. Three days later, Mario said he must stay indoors that afternoon to write letters. He suggested that Joanna too should write, sitting at the table beside him. As yet, she had only sent a postcard home each day and had torn up several attempts at a letter to her mother. But she felt incapable of setting words on paper and said that she would wait for him outside. A look of distress crossed Mario's face, but he let her go 
telling her twice over exactly to which spot between the disused fish ponds of the monastery he would follow her in a very short time. As they parted, there was a moment of empty between them, and Joanna knew that he had guessed at and hated her longing to be alone. Yet as she went slowly down the hill, her solitude was very sweet to her. It was the first time since she had been alone in any way that counted since her marriage. When Mario was with her, she could only feel. Now she could think quietly, luxuriously. It was as if tight coils in her mind were unloosed, and this, though she had been unaware lately of any strain in his company. Sitting on a log between the ponds and the edge of the wood, she faced the neat quadrangles of water, and her thoughts flew to Kalesi Street. What were they all doing? Without warning, an overmastering affection for her mother swept through her. When I go back, she told herself passionately, I'll be loving and most tender, and mother will be so happy at that, and the boys too. Why have I always been so cold when I love them so very dearly? I wonder they can like me at all, but they will love me when they find how changed I am. I shall like them to love me tremendously. Then sharply came the realisation of foolishness in all such thoughts. The old life was over, and with it, its chances of loving and winning love. There might be other chances later, never the same again. And now it seemed to Joanna that she could easily, oh, so easily, have been a loving daughter. It was simply that she had not thought of it at the time. Again she found herself saying, When I get back. And again she had to pull herself up. How was it that she could not make herself believe that she had finally broken with the life at home? How was it that she could never for long rid of herself the irrational conviction that her life with Mario was an interlude which would soon pass? When I get back. Only the night before she had unwittingly let the phrase fall in talk with Mario and had stopped short seeing the look in his eyes. He had demanded the meaning of her words, but she had no explanation. You speak as if you were my mistress, he had said. Remember, you are my wife. And as I am an Italian, you are my wife for as long as I live. He had looked strangely angry, Joanna thought, considering that it was after all a natural slip. But now, as she sat waiting for him through this first long half hour of separation, she knew she could figure no future in their marriage. Once, twice, three times she tried, and the vain attempts made her so unhappy that she rose and went a little way into the wood. I have no imagination. That's it, she told herself for comfort. Or perhaps all newly married women feel like that. As she strayed in and out amid the thin skirting of trees, she knew, as if she saw him, how Mario was writing with a frown on his face, and hurriedly, that he might join her with the least possible delay. Before letting her go, he had told her she never need expect to walk out alone in Florence, not even for five minutes. But this, she determined, must be put down to his ever-passing vexation. 
that he should have spoken it in earnest, she could not well conceive. Yet there had been that in his face as he spoke, a look of fixed, almost maniacal resolve, that she was shaken at the remembrance. She had once wondered if Bob were mad. Now she asked herself the same question of Mario. Were all men mad? She felt lonely in the world, like someone from another star. Would she ever learn the ways of earth? Ever feel herself at home here? If she had even possessed memories of another world, there would be some solid standing in this. But as she was, she seemed to belong nowhere. At that moment, Mario stepped out of the Valino looking in her direction. From her shelter of trees, Joanna saw him, and saw him worried by her absence. But she would make no sign. Instead, to tease him still more, she hid behind one of the broader tree trunks and gathered her bright blue skirts close to her legs, so there might be no reassuring flutter. As the afternoon was cool, she had borrowed one of her husband's knitted waistcoat with sleeves, which he wore when bicycling. And with little orange wool coat over a vivid gown, she looked like some gay-coloured shy bird. She couldn't help laughing to herself as she watched the unwillingness with which Mario turned in at the monastery gates with his letters. If they did not go at once, they would miss the post. Besides, she knew that he had to buy stamps, but she saw him hesitate, and twice he looked over his shoulder before he could enter the little post office at the top of the courtyard. He was gone, but a few seconds. Then pushing his letters hastily into the outside box, he ran across the wide, paved space and came running all the way down to the fish ponds. Joanna, still in hiding, smiled broadly and held her breath. Her heart was leaping deliciously. When he came quite close, she meant to run into his arms. Now she could hear his quickened breathing as he looked uncertainly on either side. Then he called her name. Giovanna! Giovanna! he called. And she no longer smiled. At the note of unlooked-for panic in his voice, her blood stood still. All idea of the embrace she had planned died in her. She stepped out from behind her tree, confronting him. His face was livid, insane, and he stumbled over a root as he ran towards her. Never do that again, he commanded in a strangling fury. But you shall not again have the chance while I live, for not again you shall go out by yourself. He stood close to her, and now that his fear was past, he was threatening her. Joanna shrank a step back, but he caught her wrists. What did it mean last night that you spoke as if we shall not be long together? Eh? You tell me, what did it mean? Joanna shook her head, and she had to moisten her lips with her tongue before she could answer. I don't know. You don't know? Dio mio, can I trust you? What are you? What kind of a woman? I don't know. I know nothing of you. You have treacherous eyes. Down in the field yesterday, they were green as the grass. Now they are grey. They change. And your little tongue just now crept out between your lips like a viper. What is the meaning of it? What do you hide from me? Joanna, though now she felt both afraid and in the wrong, stared proudly at her husband, 
then turned her eyes away with ostentatious carelessness. Anyhow, he had no right to speak so to her, and she must be angry in self-defence. At the same time, there was a secret, inebriating enjoyment for her in it all. In a new way, she became conscious of her power as a woman. I did it for fun, of course, she said. Can't you understand a joke? You did it for fun. A joke! One day, you would perhaps think it fun to be unfaithful to me. It would be your little joke to deceive your husband. Perhaps this is the kind of woman you really are. Have you been unfaithful to me already? Here among the trees. A dog of a priest. At Joanna's very heart, something cried out that she was truly accused. But to stifle and deny that voice, all her powers leapt up like ruffians. Her brain repulsed his words as preposterous. Her flesh sprang taut, so that with one sharp movement she wrenched her hands free, and from her lips came an exclamation as of one bitterly injured. But in her anger, she knew at once that she was no match for Mario, and the next moment she had rushed into another falseness. Mario, she said, looking at him very quietly, I don't understand. You know I only hid for fun. It was silly of me, and I'm sorry it put you out. But I did nothing wrong. She spoke with false, lovely gentleness, deceiving herself as well as Mario, and immediately he was full of penitence. Forgive what I said. It meant nothing, but you make me suffer so terribly. You should not have hidden in that way. I cannot bear it. Never hide from me again. Let us say no more, either of us. Let us kiss and forgive. He held out his arms with the expression Joanna most loved on his face, human and pleading, very winning to her, and she ran into his embrace. What are you like? he whispered, when they had stood some moments wrapped together in that solitary place. What are you like, Giovanna? And he drew back his head the better to see his wife's face. To me, your body is like steel and white swans down. Your neck, your breasts are soft as swans down. Your straight, fine thighs are like steel. Your arms, so long and small, are like the necks of swans. I should like never to let you go. I wish you could be buckled to me, close. Close like this for always. When you go from me, I feel as if my vitals have been torn out. So empty. Quite useless. He held her still longer, bracing his body hard against hers, and suddenly he laughed. I love you for being so strong, he said. Do you know you have muscles like a leopardess? I must teach you to fence with the sabres. I have a pair in Florence. We shall fence in the evenings when I come home, in our own room, and you shall wear the black suit Maddalena is to make for you. I believe, Giovanna, you could wrestle with me and make it difficult for me to throw you. At the challenge, Joanna, who had been hanging limp and heavy in his arms, tightened her hold on him with an excited laugh. Though so near the Villino, the seclusion at this hour was perfect. Over her husband's shoulder, between the trees... Away along the road she could just see a tiny black figure, the priest, on his way to Compline. She remembered his young, unhappy face, and for that moment it was not Mario that she held against her breast. They began to wrestle. Silently, 
save for little gasping laughs when one for the minute got the better. They strove with one another. They swayed to and fro, staggering. Sometimes they would lean against a tree, panting, then start afresh. Joanna fought her hardest at once, and Mario matched himself to her, always keeping something in reserve. As a schoolgirl might, Joanna really strained every nerve to prove the stronger, till, at length, seeing the laughter in her face die under the grimness of supreme effort, Mario used his full strength suddenly and threw her. She had tried her best, and she rejoiced that he had beaten her. He had made her his anew, and she longed for him. For the first time she was truly his bride, he her bridegroom. Mario! Oh, Mario, look at the sky, she breathed. The colour of it. As they lay there all slackly, resting on their backs on the sweet ground, recovering their breath, staring up and up between the treetops at the quiet sky, the monastery bell began to ring for Compline. The smell of fresh-hewn wood came to them and the sharp fragrance of the pine needles. Now and then, a cone rustled heavily from branch to branch and thudded to the earth. Somewhere, a cicada whirred like a pygmy's loom weaving indefatigably some fairy web. Another hidden being spoke in eager whisperings as a pencil moving over paper speaks, faltering at times as if the poet flagged, but only to begin again with the speed of inspiration. Yet another tiny creature of the forest shrilled and shrilled with its insistent thread-like voice. The austere, gothic woodland, regular as stone, measured and set in that place by anointed hands, was full of life. There was life in the aisles of air between the trees, life in the dark plumes, life in the stark shafts, life amid the defiant roots. The sky palpitated from blue to violet, from violet to still deeper blue, and a star came down and glittered like a tear in the black meshes of the pine.